are we studying right now? <laughs> yeah, that's sort of a tricky question there. It was the book of Psalms. But of course, within the book of Psalms, there are um, five books. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're going to finish up book four and then go into book five, the last book. Uh, and I thought a little bit of review would, would help here. Uh, and I want to go back to Psalm 1. Uh, it's, as, as of course we've talked about quite a bit in, in this class, it's, it's difficult to just get a, a single theme for the book of Psalms because the book of Psalms was Israel's songbook. It's like you know taking our songbook and saying, hey, what's the theme of our songbook? But there is a theme, and, and, and if you look at the, um, what, what some people call the bookend psalms, the first and the last of a book, you, you can kind of get that idea. And, and of course, Psalm 1 is, a book, is one of the bookend psalms for the entire book of psalms. And what's Psalm 1 about? The righteous Yeah, and of course, the recommendation is that we would be the righteous people. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And, and of course, as we've gone through the Psalms, we've seen a lot about righteousness versus wicked. We've seen, uh, you know, David's talked about his enemies and, and how terrible they are, and, and Lord, save me from these terrible people and all that. Um, and, and he ends up in Psalm 1, the, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And we've even had some of the psalms that have talked about how why are the wicked doing so well? <laughs> and, and, and you know, and again coming back, eventually coming back to this chapter one, verse six, uh, the Lord does know the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked is going to perish. But I also want to look at Psalm two. Um, it's not exactly a bookend psalm, but it's at the beginning and it helps set the theme. What's Psalm two about? Yes, kingship, the Lord's uh, anointed. Uh, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? Yeah, originally perhaps it might have been David, but ultimately it's Jesus. Uh, and this psalm was quoted quite a bit in the New Testament. And uh, look in verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son that I have begotten you. Very familiar verse recorded in the New Testament. And we're going to see some more references to this in this morning's lesson. But I want to jump forward now in the review and I want to go to the beginning of book 4, which is Psalm what? Psalm 90. Uh, yeah, book 4 starts with Psalm 90. Who wrote that book? Moses. Yes, Moses, the man of God. Uh, only book, only psalm we have in the in the book of Psalms written by him, at least that we know of. And what's the theme of of Psalm ninety? Well, time. Yes, and and you can imagine how Moses would have been thinking about that a lot during those forty years in the wilderness, because God had announced. This whole generation is going to die. Not a one of these people that left Egypt is going to 
is going to go in the land. And so Moses just Moses lives year after year, and he just sees these people dying and dying, and, and sometimes you know being struck dead by God. You know, you think of Korah and Abiram, or, or you think of um, the the, um, the people that got struck with a plague when they were craving the meat, or or when they were um, committing fornication with the women of uh, of Midian, and, and you know, and and so he just he meditates on this. And this is one of these bookend psalms. So we've got, it's setting the theme for the book four. Um, God is eternal. He just goes forever. A thousand years are like what for God? It's just a day. Just yeah, just a day. Or even a watch in the night. It's just it's, you know, nothing for Him. Um, and yet, what is man like? Um... Look at yeah, like grass in verse five. They are like grass which sprouts anew in the morning. It flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. That's not very complimentary for us, is it? <laughs> you know, the, the the greatest person on earth that thinks he's just really somebody. It's just like grass that sprouts up in the morning and then by night is dead. And Moses looks at that, and that's that's kind of a depressing thought. Um. And and the the explanation is in verse seven: For we have been consumed by your anger, by and by your wrath we have been dismayed. Uh, and so the the conclusion that Moses has in uh, in this in this psalm is is in verse twelve: So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And this is this is a, a wisdom psalm. Not all the psalms are wisdom psalms. Of course, the Book of Proverbs is the Book of Wisdom, but. Um, some of the psalms are wisdom psalms in that they they, they meditate on on themes like righteousness or or uh, the transitoriness of, of life, and so then he closes out with a prayer to God to to favor them. Now, with that background, we're ready to start looking at today's psalms, and we'll start in 102. Prayer of a sufferer appealing to God's what? Yeah, the title, the title I picked was God's Eternity. And see, you see the connection between that title and the 90th Psalm. That, um, and we'll see as we look through it um, how he does this. You know, he's obviously in, in need. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Um, in verse 4, my heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away, indeed I forget to eat my bread. That, um, of course, he's using the term grass a little bit differently than Psalm 90, but it kind of reminds me of it. Um, but he keeps, he keeps on describing his sad state. I don't know what, I don't really know what his particular problem is, but he's just, it's just a terrible situation he's in. I, um, I think that he's writing this after Jerusalem was destroyed and they were in, they were slaves in Babylon, um, because he talks about um, somewhere in this psalm. I think he talks about 
rescuing Zion. I may I may have gotten this confused. Have compassion. Yeah, have compassion on time uh, on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, so up through verse eleven, he's just telling you know how how bad things are. Verse eleven: My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither away like grass. Again, a reference back to Psalm ninety in our minds. And then he says, "But how long does God abide?" In verse 13, in verse twelve, forever. Again, the same idea as Psalm ninety. And the psalm, and, and I don't know whether this psalm was, was thinking of Psalm ninety or whether he even knew about Psalm ninety, but um, he's applying the principles that Moses put in in that psalm to his own life. And Lord, I, you know, in in Psalm ninety, Moses was looking in general, you know. In general, we're all like grass, and you know the years of a man are seventy years, or by strength eighty years, um, and God's eternal. But now this guy's looking at himself. He says, "I'm like grass, Lord. You're eternal. Help. You know, you're the only one that can help." And and that's exactly right. Why would we go for help to someone else who's like grass? There's only one that's eternal, and and that's the lesson here. Um, and then, of course, in verse 13, he, he wants God to take care of Zion. Um, and in verse 15, he gives a reason for this. And what's the reason? Yes, we've seen this several times in the book of Psalms. The book, the book is not just for Israel. They want the whole world to, to know the glory of God and glorify Him. And, and, and the idea is, if God will remember Zion and rescue them, then all the nations will fear the name of the Lord. Well, really, when you look back in history, the rescue of, of the Jews from Babylonian captivity, giving them back their land, is just an unprecedented event in history. You know, Where else have you ever seen a people that have been completely removed from their land for 70 years, and then they get, and then you get to have it back? I, mean, I, I don't know of any other time in history when that's ever happened. Um, Except that it happened again with the Israelites in the 20th century after almost 2,000 years. Yeah, it just unprecedented. Um, and then um, in verse 18, even more than just the all nations, who else is going to praise God because of this? People yet to come. Yeah. So then in verse 23, He has weakened my strength in the way He has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. <laughs> and He goes on for several verses like that. So, um, he's, um, he's appealing to the eternal God to lengthen His days because He's in desperate shape. Now, I want to mention that I'm trying to mention if I find any psalms that are quoted in the New Testament in any kind of a noteworthy way, I try to point it out. And verses 25 through 27 fit into that category. See if you recognize this. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Does that ring a bell anywhere in the New Testament to you? Changing like a garment. Right? Yeah, Hebrews chapter 1. 
who is Hebrews chapter 1 about? It's about Jesus. And so the psalmist wants to show how Jesus is greater than the angels, so he quotes these verses. But what are, who are these verses about? They're about God. Doesn't the Hebrew writer know the difference between God and Jesus? <laughs> I think he's trying to tell us something here. Just like when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And he says, have I been with you this long and you don't know me? <laughs> he who has seen me has seen the Father. So the statements in the, in the book of Psalms about Jehovah are also valid about Jesus. Alright. Um, Psalm 103. Praise to the Lord for His many blessings. G. Campbell Morgan said about this psalm, he says, it is perhaps the most perfect song of pure praise to be found in the Bible. <laughs> Which is a pretty strong statement. But Psalm 103 is really a very wonderful psalm. Um, I'll just mention a couple things about it here before we get started. It starts with the phrase, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And notice at the last verse how it ends. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What do we call that? When something starts and ends with the same thing. Yeah, um, you could call it bookends, you could call it bracketing, uh, or inclusio. Yes. Yeah. All those names are, will work. But inclusio sounds the most scholarly. Alright. So let's look through this psalm and see what he's praising God for. Um, now the New American Standard says praise the Lord, pr praise for the Lord's mercies, and I, I suggested a title, praise the Lord for His many blessings, because I think it goes more than just mercy. But there is plenty of mercy in, in the psalm. Um, in verse three, what's he praising God for? Yeah, pardons our iniquities, redeems your life. What does it mean? Redeems your life from the pit? Yeah, save, He saves you from death. That's what that's saying. Um, in verse 10, still on the topic of sins, but even greater, what does He say here? We don't get what we deserve. Yeah. Um, so in verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. And He keeps going, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. This is... Of course, this is supposed to be poetry, but it's a wonderful way to put these things. Just as the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame, and He is mindful that we are but dust. Well, that's going back right to the Psalm 90 theme again. God understands our frailties and the fact that we, we are here for such a short time, we're, just, we're really just dust. And He has compassion on us. He doesn't deal with us as our, our sins deserve. And so verse 15, um, as for man, his days are like grass. I mean, this again is going right back to um, Psalm 90. And, and this verse, verses 15 and 16, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over, it is no more. That reminds us of something in the New Testament. Anyone know where that is? 
might remind you of that. It doesn't remind me of that because I can't. I don't place that one. But reminds me of a marching on mode. Yeah. Yeah, James chapter 1 is where it was reminding me. Peter probably has something about it too. I just couldn't tell you where it is. But in James, he talks about uh, the, when he's talking about the rich person, he, he compares him to the grass of the field. And it sounds a lot like this. I'm sure that's what he was thinking of, although he wasn't directly quoting from the Old Testament when he said that. And then there's other things he says. In verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Um, so mostly, it is true, most of the psalm is about the mercy of God primarily in the matter of um, how He treats us in our sins. There's a wonderful psalm of praise to God. He ends up, Bless the Lord, all you, all you works of His and all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I think the reason why G. Campbell Morgan calls this a perfect psalm of pure praise is that there's nothing in the entire psalm where we're asking God for anything. The psalmist is just saying great things about God and no requests. It's just pure praise. <laughs> Alright. Um, Psalm 104. More praise to the Lord, this time for His creative power and care over His creation. There's all kinds of things we can praise God for. And uh, so in this one, again starts with bless the Lord on my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And then in um, verse 5, he says he established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. So here we have a a review of of the things God has created and His great creative power. So in verse 5, he established the earth and he keeps going, you know, talking about, this is really going back to Genesis 1. And then he, he, he provides for His creation. In verse 11, He gives drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. And He mentions the birds and, and all that. So, not only does God create everything, but He provides for what He's created. In verse 14, what's the grass for? For the cattle, yeah. And vegetation for the labor of man so that He may bring forth food from the earth. And then He goes into... Uh, wine and, and oil and food and trees and, and all these kind of things. Um, and, and, and the whole point is God is providing for what He has created. Um, and let's see here. Um, twenty Verse 24, O Lord, how many are Your works! In wisdom You have made them all. The earth is full of Your possessions. So, the, the wisdom, I think, is important. He, he's looking at not just the fact that God has great power, but He's very wisely arranged it all so that animals get food, people get food. And, and, and of course, anybody that thinks about this instead of thinking about ourselves all the time will we'll see numerous examples of this. Everywhere we turn, we just see how perfectly arranged this creation is. And, and, and we, re- we see behind that the, the wisdom of the Creator God. Um, and then he, he gives us a kind of a contrast here in verse 29. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. What this is saying is that every one of us needs God every moment of the day. 
The fact that I'm still alive now, I was alive an hour ago, but the fact that I'm alive now is simply because God has not removed His face. He's not hidden His face from me. God has sustained my life and, and, and your life. He is constantly doing this. And, and it's, the psalmist is looking at this. It just, you know, If God just turns His back for a moment, poof, there we go. Um, now, um, I'll mention a, a quotation of this one. In verse 4, He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. Anyone know where that is quoted? Hebrews chapter 1 again. Uh, the Hebrew writer, though, instead of the word messengers, uses the word angels. And the reason he does that is because he's quoted from the Septuagint. The Septuagint translated this to be uh, angels. Uh, and the word angel can also be translated messenger, so it's very closely connected. Psalm 105. Um, the Lord's wonderful works for Israel. Um, See, we just covered the Lord's works in creation. Now we're going to cover His works on behalf of Israel. Um, and I'll just mention just a side point. This is not a major issue, but there's a psalm that is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And this psalm was a psalm of thanksgiving when, when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. And the first half of that psalm, verses 8-22, to match the first 15 verses of this psalm. <laughs> um, and strangely enough, the, the second half of that psalm, First Chronicles, comes from Psalm 96. <laughs> so it's another one of those uh, uh, psalms as a combination of others. Now, looking at our, our psalm here, um, verse 5, Remember His wonders which He has done, His marvels and the judgments uttered by His mouth. Of course, with that statement, the psalmist could go any direction. But in this case, in verse 6, he shows us the direction he's going to go is to trace God's wonders on behalf of His covenant people, beginning with who? With Abraham. That's right. And so in verse 8, He has remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations. God is a God of faithfulness, and when He makes a promise, He keeps it. Um, <coughs> in verse 12, when, when did His great power get shown to these people? Yeah, yeah when there were just very few. And of course, that meant they were powerless. So, in order to, to take care of these people, Notice the strange thing he did. In verse 16, what did he do to take care of these people of his covenant? Family. He said a famine. What famine are we talking about? Where would you read about this famine in the Bible? Genesis. In, in Genesis. The one that God gave the dreams to Pharaoh to, to announce. And how, how was this famine good for the covenant people? Right. It's the way God got them down into Egypt. And that was very important. Although the psalmist doesn't go into to all the reasons why, but they were in Egypt they were a separate people. They didn't mingle with the Egyptians. And so they could remain God's separate covenant people for the years it's taking them to grow into a great nation. 
and also that they were in a that they were out of the desert and in a very fertile land where in fact they could multiply. Yeah, the land of Goshen. That's right. It it it. it um, they didn't have any competition from the Egyptians. The Egyptians didn't, didn't want to hurt sheep. Yeah, there were seventy going in. That's right. Um, and so then he goes through the story of Joseph here, and um, <clears throat> then after we finish Joseph in verse twenty-five, what did God do to help His people? Again, what seems to be a curse is going to be a blessing. He made the, God made the Egyptians hate His people. And that allowed Him then to bring them out with great power. And so the next few verses cover the ten what? Yeah, the ten plagues. Um, although he doesn't, I don't think no, that He covers every one, but, but most of them. Um, and then in verse 37, they come out with, um, you know, with riches and all that. And in verse 30, Egypt was glad when they departed. <laughs> I guess so. Um, and then in um, in verse 44, He gave them also the lands of the nations they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor so that they might keep His statutes and observe His laws. Praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah, well, keep your finger here because the next, the next psalm is going to refer back to this. Um, I got to mention one other thing. In verse forty, they asked for quail, and he brought. They asked for. They asked, and he brought quail, and satisfied with them them with the bread of heaven. That phrase, bread of heaven, is found in John six verse thirty one, when the people were wanting Jesus. Jesus had just fed the five thousand, so then they remind him, "Hey, Moses fed them with the bread of heaven. You know what are you going to do?" <laughs> and that's where they get this phrase. All right. 106. Israel's rebelliousness and the Lord's deliverances. This psalm is really a continuation of the previous psalm. Um, it starts with praise the Lord. Um, and in verse 3, who is blessed? Yeah, who keep justice and practice righteousness at all times. Now, you notice that the last verse of, of 105, so they might keep His statutes and observe His laws. And so it, this is going to be about that issue. Um, about people, well, not necessarily, this psalm is not really about people that keep His laws. <laughs> would that it would be so, but in fact, uh, look in verse 6. What's the psalmist say? Yeah, we have sinned like our fathers. We behave wickedly. And so, he goes through a number of verses about how the people kept turning away from God. Picking up the same history he did in the previous psalm. I don't know whether it's written by the same person, but it certainly sounds like it to me. Um, and, and how, you know, in verse 7, they rebelled at the Red Sea, and he, and he saved them again. Um, and then in verse 13, what they do? They quickly forgot his works, they did not wait for his counsel. So he had to punish them. Uh, and then he mentions uh, becoming envious of Moses in the, in the rebellion of Korodath and Abiram in verse 16. And in verse 19, uh, what do we call that calf they made? The, the, gold, the golden calf. Um, verse 21, 
they forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Again, going back to the previous psalm, all the things that he praised God for, the people just forgot. Obviously, this is not written just about those people. It's written about us too. I mean, we have the same sinful te- te- temptations that those people have. Um, and it's hard. We, we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of what God has done in the past and, and instead of complaining about what, what He may or may not be doing in our lives right now. Um, so... Um, then in verse 34, we get all the way into the promised land. And what did they fail to do in the promised land? They didn't destroy the people. They mingled with the nations. They learned their practices. They served their idols, which of course became a snare to them. And, and it just and it, it, it was terrible. And so finally in verse 47, the psalmist has a request. And what's his request? Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. It sounds again like they're in Babylon in captivity when he's writing this. Um, I'll mention as far as New Testament references, verse 20, thus they exchange their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. Does that sound like anything that rings a bell in the New Testament? Uh, it's not exact, so it's a little bit difficult. But Romans chapter one, verse twenty-three, when Paul talks about the Gentiles, they exchange the glory of God for a, a created thing. In verse thirty-seven, they even sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the demons. Paul makes a reference to that in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse twenty, when he talks about the, the, that the Gentiles are sacrificing to demons, and he says. You don't want to be partaking of the table of demons. <clears throat> now, one more thing before I go on. This is the last psalm in book 4. It's a bookend psalm. <laughs> psalm 90 was the, first, was the beginning and discussed the transitoriness of man versus the eternity of God. Now, the last one in the in this same book is talking about the fact that the Israelites have constantly turned away from God and God has punished them and constantly forgiven them their sins and they've ended up finally in captivity. So, book 4, we just finished it and we'll look again. We suggest the theme of it is what God teaches in the midst of judgment. And you can see how the beginning and the ending psalm fit that theme very well. And so now we're ready to go into book five, which is the longest book of, of, all, of all five. And we're suggesting the theme here is that God is Israel's true king. They, they began by celebrating Israel's king as God's agent, but I think they were thinking more of David and, and his descendants. Uh, David here on the history chart lived back around 1000 B.C., only a couple generations after David, they split into two kingdoms. And so, you know, it didn't seem so much like the king was God's agent. There was kings instead of king. And finally, in 586 B.C., there was no king at all. And they were taken into Babylonian captivity, which is where a number of these psalms were written. Although some of them were written after they came back. And the book five certainly would have been collected after they returned. And now, but after they returned, they still didn't have a king. 
And you know, they went on year after year, and decade after decade, no king, and, and they're trying to reflect what's going on. You know, have have God's promises failed? And so they're going to finally end up with the, the, the solution to the problem is that God's king, God, the God is our king, and that's and um, rather than man. And of course, you remember back when they when they first wanted a king, what did God say to Samuel? They were rejecting as king. They were rejecting God. That's right. All right. So, Psalm 107, a bookend psalm. It's gonna it's gonna help set the tone for this last book. Uh, the Lord rescues people from many troubles. This is I like this psalm. It, it's just it's really neat. I, I I thought of actually putting an outline, but I didn't do it because. Uh, he goes through the psalm and covers people in all different situations. Not so much history. The situation he talks about, you can't go back in Genesis or Exodus and find out where it happened. He's just he's describing other situations. Um, but he starts, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. And gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. I don't know whether this might have been written after they came back from the captivity. It's, it kind of sounds like that. Um, but he, he doesn't. Not, none of his examples are specific enough for you to point out you know, exactly who he's talking about. In, in verse 4, he's talking about these people that are wandering and, and, he's, and he rescues them. Um, in verse 5, they were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. That's a major theme. Uh, a refrain in this psalm. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from out of their distresses. Um, then in verse 8, a second major refrain in the, in the psalm. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness, for His wonders to the sons of men. Then in verse 10, he, he switches to another illustration. And, and who, what are the, what's the problem with these people? Prisoners. There's prisoners. Sad, they're dwelling in darkness. It's just terrible. Why in verse 11? Why are they prisoners? Yeah, it's their own fault. Yeah. So in verse 12, He humbled their heart with labor. But, verse 13, what they do? Yeah, we had that refrain again. And He saved them out of their distresses. So, in verse 15, what should they do? Give thanks. Yes. Then in verse 17, He starts another story. Fools, because of their rebellious way. Now, the fool, of course, in, in the Old Testament means what? A, a sinner, one that rejects God. Yes. And so they they drew near to the gates of death in verse eighteen, but they cried to the Lord in verse eighteen. He saved them. And what should they do in verse twenty-one? They should give thanks. Yes. All right. Another example, verse twenty-three. Um, what's this example about? Yes. And what happens to them? Storms. A big storm. It reminds you of what book? Jonah. Yeah, the book of Jonah. It does remind us of that one. Um, yeah, they had this big, huge storm and, they're, and they're, they're at their wit's end at the end of verse 27. So what they do in verse 28? Cry to the Lord. This is great. And He caused the storm to be still. So what should they do in verse 31? <laughs> they should give thanks. Yes. Um, but, Although we've had these, what, four different illustrations, now the psalm takes a different turn in verse 33. 
from here to the end of the, of the psalm, he's going to reflect upon this and, and on what God does. And in verse 33, he changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground. God does that sometimes. You had this land where people were you know, getting rich off of farming and now suddenly it becomes barren. Or, in verse 35, he changes the wilderness into a pool of water. God does the other direction too. And a dry land into springs of water. And what he wants out of this, and, and he continues talking like this, but, but the goal uh, that God has in mind um, is in verse 43. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. God changes things. I mean, a, a lot, I mean this, this, this really angers a lot of people. You know, they, they had their heart set on, on this particular thing happening and God turned around where that thing isn't going to happen. And now they're mad. You know, and and I, you know, I've had people tell me, you know, I, I don't believe in God because I asked Him to do something and He didn't do it for me. You know, they're referring to something years ago. And God is not in any way obligated to do what we ask Him to do. And there are times when, when if He did what we asked Him to do, it would be worse for us. God does things, He changes things, not so we can always be happy and fat and, and, and just having a great time. Um, he changes them so that we'll think about God and, and to turn our hearts to Him. And we need to reflect on these things. When things don't work out the way we, we thought they should, we ought to reflect on, well, what, I, what would God want me to learn from this? Rather than, oh, I, you know, what kind of God am I serving if He's going to treat me like that? <clears throat> Now notice, this is the lead psalm in the book. And so it's try, it, the, the, one of them in book 5 that is. So we, we expect one of the messages of book 5 to have to do with the fact that God is good. He rescues people from their sins. The, the, the trouble they've gotten into because of their sins. And they ought to give thanks to God and they ought to reflect upon who God is. Um, Psalm 108. Praise to God in prayer for victory. This is an interesting uh, psalm. The first five verses are from Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. And the last six to 13 verses are from Psalm 65 through 12. Sometimes I call these tribute psalms. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we do the same thing ourselves. We have some songs in our, our book that actually have verses taken from other songs. You know, and um, so there's no reason why David can't do that with with Psalm 180. But I'm going to go on um, Psalm 109, prayer for God's vengeance on David's enemies. This is really is one of the more famous imprecatory psalms. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but um, if the word imprecation is kind of like a curse. Um, and an imprecatory psalm is a psalm that calls down curses on the person's enemies. And we've seen a number of these already, but this is one of the, the stronger ones. We've still got a strong one yet to go with 137. Um, but um, we'll, we'll, And this one is actually quoted in the New Testament. Um, one of the curses. Well, in fact, it's one of the curses that's quoted in the New Testament. But the, there's a lot that's been written about imprecatory psalms because this bothers people. Um, the question comes up, you know, am I supposed to have that attitude toward my enemies? 
Uh, David gets he gets pretty strong about it, but he has reasons. I mean, he says in verse two, "They have opened the wick, the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers." We've seen this kind of thing before, David. I mean, he's had some pretty bad people uh, on his case, and so he says. In verse 6, appoint a wicked man over them and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. And let his days be few. Let another take his office. Where's that quoted? Let another take his office. Yeah, in Acts chapter 1, Peter refers to this psalm and he says, we got to get us a new apostle because here's what the psalm said about Judas. Well, of course, this psalm is not about Judas specifically. David's writing it about his enemies. But it certainly would apply to the enemy of the son of David, the arch enemy of Judas. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. And it just goes on to just, whoa. Um, well, we can't say that this is, this is an unscriptural type thing if Peter quotes it and says, hey, we got to apply it. And in fact, you find the same kind of language even in the New Testament. Especially in the very last book, the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, you have the souls of the saints underneath the altar. They've been killed because of their of their faith in the Lord. And they ask God what? What's their prayer to God? How long before you avenge our blood? And the rest of the book really is an answer to that. And it's got some very strong language about what's going to happen to all these people that have been abusing God's saints. And, and that's exactly what David is talking about here. These people were abusing a holy one of God who, who was David. And David is simply asking for justice on them. And let me see, I wanted to grab another verse or so here. Um, verse, I, I like verse 17. He's still talking about this evil man. He also loved cursing, so it came to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. <laughs> That's a clever way to put it. Um, and verse 20, Let this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord and of those who speak evil against my soul. But you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake, because your loving kindness is good. Deliver me. For I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. And finally, he closes out in verse 30, with my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. Um, and he praises God for saving him. Now we come to one of the most quoted psalms in the whole book. Psalm 110. Uh, this and Psalm 2, I, I believe, are the most quoted psalms. Uh, quoted in the New Testament, that is. Um, this is a messianic psalm. What do we mean by messianic? It's about the Messiah. And who is that? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. The word Messiah is the Old Testament word for Christ. It means the Anointed One. The Lord says to my Lord... No, do you notice, if you look carefully in your Bible, you notice the difference between the first word Lord and the second word Lord? The first one's all caps and the second one's just the first letter's capitalized. What does an all caps Lord mean? It means Jehovah, Yes. The all caps means Jehovah. And if you have the old 
the old American standard is now over 100 years old. It always uses the word Jehovah in there. In fact, L.A. Mott, he still uses that old, old American standard. So when he's reading, you'll, you'll hear him read the word Jehovah. So it, it, it would be, Jehovah says to my Lord. But in the New Testament, whenever they quote this, it's always, the Lord says to my Lord. Because the New Testament never says the word Jehovah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemy the footstool for your feet. Where is that first verse quoted in the New Testament? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And it's all three the same story. Jesus was challenging the Pharisees. They were saying, hey, you know the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, they all did. Oh, it's David. David's son. Well, how come David, and of course, this is the Psalm of David, how come David then calls him Lord? Whoever calls their son Lord? <laughs> and of course, they had no idea how to answer that. Um, and then it's also that, that same verse is quoted. Um, in Acts chapter 2, in verses 34 and 35, um, Peter quotes that in his sermon. And the Hebrew writer quotes it in chapter 1, verse 13, and in chapter 10, verse 12. So just one verse gets quoted, and in, in, uh, by my count, that's five different places, six different places. Oh, can someone get that, please? Um, thanks, John. And then verse 4 is also quoted in the New Testament. The Lord, and again this is all uppercase Lord, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And who is, who is the, the New Testament? What, what is the New Testament book that deals with this verse a lot? Hebrews, Hebrews yeah. Um, yeah, there's three different places in Hebrews, chapter 5 and 7, where it's quoted. And he makes a big deal about that. What was unusual about Melchizedek? The Old Testament guy. He was both priest and king. Name me any, any other Old Testament king who was both priest and king. You're thinking maybe uh, of the guy that got struck with leprosy. Who was, was that? Isaiah? Or also known as Azariah? Yeah. Yeah, there was none back there, but Jesus is both priest and king. Now, I'll mention in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Which Lord is that? Yeah, Brent? That's Jesus, not all uppercase. And we already saw that in verse 1, the lowercase O-R-D is Jesus. So now, the psalmist is talking to somebody different. In the first four verses... Um, he's been talking to Jesus. Uh, the you in, in the first verse is always Jesus. But now in verse 5, the you can't be Jesus because the Lord is at your right hand. Who's He talking to now? To Jehovah, yes. And so the last half of the, of the psalm is telling Jehovah about what Jesus is going to do as a great warrior conquering all, all these enemy kings. Any last questions or comments? That leaves us that leaves with two psalms left to go from this lesson, but I didn't want to do one and not the other. They the next two go together. So we'll do this next time. Appreciate everyone's help.